Will you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, and we want everybody to be able to follow along, so these brothers have some Bibles, they're going to make their way to the back, and if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you, as we look at Genesis 3 together. What comes to mind when you think of evil? I think for most of us, we train our thoughts on infamous persons like Hitler, Charles Manson, the 9-11 bombers, or more recently, the Planned Parenthood organization. These are indeed all evil, but they are certainly not the only kinds of manifestations of evil. There's evil that people commit, but there's also the evil that afflicts people who did nothing in particular that caused them to suffer in a particular way. What Hitler and Manson and the Islamic terrorists and Planned Parenthood all have in common is that they have victimized people who did nothing to warrant their murderous actions. So evil is not just what people do. It's the fact that other people suffer from what evil people do. And it's not just the obvious things that we call evil, but it includes the varieties of sin and its results that we would just normally term bad or unfortunate. So why do people get cancer? And why do earthquakes happen? Why do people gossip? Why do spouses cheat? Why do students cheat? Why do professional baseball players fight with each other, even when they're on the same team? Why are you joyless in your life? Why is there tension in your relationships with your co-workers, with your family, with your church? Why did dogs die? Why do people die? Why is the environment dying? the answer to all of these and a myriad more questions, why do children rebel, wives brood over what could have been if they married the right guy, the heartache as we remember what it was like when things were good or the tears that flow because of regret of how we should have made them better, all of those things go back to a single historical event at the beginning of human history that God records for us in Genesis chapter 3. Now, many of you are familiar with what it says. Artists have depicted the scene in the Garden of Eden with a beguiling snake watching as the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, eat the forbidden fruit. That forbidden fruit always given as an apple for some reason, even though the Bible does not designate the particular fruit. We've even named a part of our anatomy the Adam's apple. We're going to look at the details of this foundational passage that explains so much of human experience for now thousands of years. But please understand this, friends, that as we do, this is no mythical story. Adam and Eve were historical figures who really lived and who really did what we'll read. And it is the kinds of consequences that we've already mentioned and many more. It's this event that has resulted in in the paradise that God created in Eden being corrupted. So that we now live in a fallen world, a world that is, in the famous words of the Christian poet John Milton, a paradise lost. This passage in Genesis 3 explains the origin of our problems. But the good news is God has not left us to wallow in our problems. And this is why we've called this series in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, our problems, and God's promises. And so let's ask God for his help as we see what's gone wrong in our lives and how God has made a remedy for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your book that tells us what we could not know any other way except you reveal it. Lord, we experience our lives and all of the turmoil and all of the difficulty that we experience from others and that we contribute to by our own sin. We experience all of that, but we would have no idea why 
had you not deigned to tell us. Thank you for recording for us what happened and how we have sinned in our first parents. And now what we experience is the result of that. And thank you for telling us the solution to that problem centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today then as we consider how what happened at the beginning continues to happen in our own lives so that we may leave this place better equipped to withstand temptation toward the sin that destroys. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 of Genesis 3 starts out this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. It begins with this word translated now. The Hebrew word creates a disjunction between chapter 3 and how chapter 2 ended. All of the good things that God has now done in his creation have been completed. And God has given a full explanation for those. But now something different happens. That's what you're to see in that very first word. Now someone different and something different is going to happen. Now the serpent was more crafty. Now we're going to see in a bit that behind the words of the serpent are the words of the devil, Satan, the accuser. But if you've been with us as we've looked at the first two chapters of the Bible and all that God did in creating the universe and in creating humanity, you should be asking yourself, where did this come from? As we've read through these first two chapters over these last few weeks, there was no note of discord at all. Everything is good. At the end of chapter 1, God pronounced all that he had made as very good. So that could not have included an evil being like Satan. So where did Satan come from? Or more broadly, where did evil come from? If God's good and he made a purely good world, then where does evil come from? Don't we just have to admit, as some would say, that God created evil? Now this issue is sometimes called the problem of evil. For if God is good, then how indeed can there be evil? Let me quickly give you the beginnings at least to an answer to that. The first thing we need to understand is that evil is not a thing. And so evil is not something to be created. In fact, one way to think about evil is this. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is not something that God positively created. Evil is an absence of those things that God positively and created good. One author says this, evil is not a thing in itself, even though it's real. Rather, evil is the privation of some good that something ought to have. As Augustine pointed out 1600 years ago, murder is the removal of a human life. That is the removal of an intrinsic good life. Adultery is a privation of a marriage, which is another intrinsic good. Good is fundamental and can exist in itself. Evil cannot exist in itself. Evil is always a parasite on good. That's a really cool line. Evil is always a parasite on good. For example, a wound cannot exist with, without a body. And the very idea of a wound presupposes the concept of a healthy body. Blindness in a human is a physical evil because humans are supposed to see. Evil actions are done to achieve things like wealth and power and sexual gratification, which the evildoer finds good or pleasing to him or her. So evil things are not done as ends in themselves, but good things are done as ends in themselves. And so since evil is not a thing, then God did not create evil. So God did not create evil. He simply created the ability not to choose good or to choose to the contrary. And Satan was, the Bible tells us, an angelic being who, like Adam and Eve, had the power of choice for good or evil. That nature of the power of choice for good or evil gave the possibility that there would be an evil choice, but not actual evil. Satan chose to use God's good gifts the good gifts that God had given to him, and use them for his own ends. And that misappropriation of God's creation is evil. 
And Satan was cast down from heaven. And we find him in the garden tempting the man and the woman to do the same because they likewise have been given the ability to choose good or evil. Now, before we explore further some of the questions that the entrance of evil poses, you might ask yourself, well, okay, we're going to read in Genesis 3 about this serpent tempting the first man and the first woman. And I don't think I'm giving away the, the end of the story. Most of you know they, they failed, epic fail in Genesis chapter 3. Well, you might be asking yourself before we look at that further, when did all this happen? Since as we've been going for the last several weeks through these opening chapters of Genesis, we saw that God created everything in six days and that everything would include would include the angels. One of whom, at least, and others with him fell. And so they were created probably early on day one, because Job tells us that the angels sang together as they watched creation happen. So they were probably created very early in the creation week so that they saw the rest of it and they sang praise to God as they witnessed that. And then humanity was created on day number six. But where is there time for Satan to have fallen and to tempt man to do likewise? Well, just very, very quickly. It had to have happened after the creation of man and woman on day six. Both of these had to have happened. The fall of Satan and the fall of humanity in chapter three. After day seven, where God blessed day seven, and on the end of his creation, he called it at the end of chapter one, all of it very, very good. But how long after the creation week did this fall occur? Well, it was probably more than just one or two days. Here's why I say that. In chapter 3 and verse 8, chapter 3 and verse 8, we'll see next week that the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. It appears that God had these regular walks in the garden in the cool of the day before the entrance of sin, before what we call the fall. And the grammar of the verb there, this walking in the garden, indicates that it was an expected practice by them. So there had to been at least enough time for Adam and Eve to have that kind of habitual expectation that God would be walking in the garden. But the time between the creation week and the fall couldn't have been very long, longer than a few days, but it couldn't have been very long. And here's one of the reasons. You remember that God gave to Adam and Eve the command to fill the earth. They were to have children. And prior to the entrance of sin, they had perfectly then healthy physical bodies. And because there was no sin, they would presumably obey. They would definitely obey what God said to to fill the earth. And yet the first child they had was a child after the entrance of sin, Cain. And so they did not have time to obey this command. And so it couldn't have been very long. Now, a corollary of that then is when did Satan fall? Adam and Eve probably fell within a few weeks after creation. The Bible doesn't tell us, but taking all that together, probably within a few weeks. But we can also constrain the timing of Satan's fall to a narrow window between the blessing that God pronounced after day seven and the fall of mankind. Somewhere between there is when Satan would have fallen. And supernatural beings, I would just point out to you, don't need much, if any time, for pride to well up and subsequently instigate the kind of rebellion that Satan led. Let me just read for you what a couple of commentators, Kyle and Dalich, say about this. There was a fall in the higher spiritual world before the fall of man, and this is plainly taught in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 and Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. And it's also assumed in everything the Scriptures say of Satan. But this event in the world of spirits neither compels us to place the fall of Satan before the six days of the work of creation, nor to assume that these days represent long periods of time. For as man did not continue long in communion with God, so the angel prince may have rebelled against God shortly after his creation, and not only have involved a host of angels in his apostasy and fall, but have proceeded immediately to tempt men who were created in the image of God in order to abuse their liberty by transgressing the divine command. So where did evil come from? Evil is the absence of good. God did not create evil. When did all this happen? Relatively short order. Probably within a matter of weeks. 
Satan chose to use God's good gifts to him and to use them for his own ends, as I've said. And this misappropriation of God's creation is evil. And we're going to see then that Satan then foists the same evil upon men and women in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I just want to deal with one other issue, and we really will get to the the heart of the message itself. But sometimes Christians are taken aback when we are confronted with this problem of evil. If God is good, then whence evil? I've given you a plausible answer to that. But of course, not everyone has to accept that answer. But please understand that those who don't believe in God have a much bigger problem than we do. Even if you want to continue to use the phrase problem of evil, they got a bigger problem than we do. And here's their problem. Because they don't have a standard, an ultimate standard of right and wrong, they can't ultimately call anything evil at all. How do you know that something is good versus evil? If you're an atheist, you just make it up as you go. Now, lest you think I'm making that up, there's a debate online that you can uh, pull off the Internet if you just Google Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. Douglas Wilson, Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, now the late Christopher Hitchens, was a few years ago. He's an atheist, a very outspoken atheist. And he debated Christian pastor Douglas Wilson a number of times at various venues throughout the, uh, the country. And in those debates, Wilson would ask Hitchens how you know, how you Hitchens know something to be wrong, something to be evil. And Hitchens would dance and he wouldn't answer because he frankly didn't have an answer. Finally, in one of these debates, he said that humans have something called an innate disposition toward morality. But he still did not say how he knows that one choice is moral or another choice is not. So in one of these debates, here's what Wilson says to him. I've been asking you to provide a warrant for morality, given atheism. And you've mostly responded with assertions that atheists can make what some people call moral choices. Well, sure. But what I've been after is what rational warrant they can give for calling one choice moral and another choice not moral. You finally appealed to innate human solidarity, a phrase that prompted a series of pointed questions from me. And in response, you now tell us that we have an innate predisposition to both good and wicked behavior. But we're still stuck. What I still want to know is what warrant you have for calling some behavior good and others wicked. If both are innate then what distinguishes the two? What could be wrong with just flipping a coin, he says. And then he says this. I would rather have my God and the problem of evil than your no God and evil, no problem. You see, that's exactly where those who don't believe in God wind up. Evil's not a problem because I can't define evil. Evil is only a problem for us because, indeed, God has told us that there is evil and he has defined precisely what that is. So now as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we have the entrance of evil into God's otherwise good world, the absence of good in both Satan and now his temptation of the first man and woman. And everything is in its own circle of creation as we look at Genesis chapter 3. And it's all operating according to its purpose. Much of the universe is like a machine and it's operating according to its purpose means doing precisely what it was programmed to do. But as we look at Genesis 3, we need to be reminded that humanity is unique in that Humanity is made in the image of God and has the capacity, now hear this, has the capacity to choose to love God. And so humanity was not programmed as the rest of creation is programmed like a machine. And that's why when Jesus was asked, when he walked the earth, what's the greatest commandment? You remember that an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And the Bible says that Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then Jesus went on to say, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus is saying that the supreme duty of humanity made in the image of God, given this capacity to choose, is to choose to love God. 
Love God and then in turn love your neighbor. And when Jesus says that in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, he's quoting from two passages in the first part of the Bible. In fact, within the first five books of the Bible. The first of those, love the Lord your God, is in Deuteronomy 6.5, with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength. And then in the book of Leviticus, we're told, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus went on to say when he walked the earth that if you love me, here's what you'll do. If you love me, keep my commands. Now, remember, this is written, Genesis is written by Moses about about 1500 B.C. In about 1500 years before the time of Christ, but several thousand years after creation. Sometimes we read Genesis and we think Moses was like, you know, a reporter watching Adam and Eve and he's taking this down. No, he lived thousands of years later. And God reveals to Moses, and Moses has oral history that has been been passed on from the patriarchs, and he's recording without error what happened at the original creation. But the reason I bring that up is this. Remember who Moses is. He's going to lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt, and God is going to form a nation and give that nation his law. And it's important for them to understand and for us to understand. That disobedience to God's commands always has disastrous results. And God is reminding them of that. And this passage is reminding us of that as well. This is our highest calling. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And it is that that Adam and Eve, our representatives, our first parents, failed to do. Now we have an outline for you as each week, that's inserted in your program. And I invite you to pull that out and take a look as we look at four things that Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, teach us then about temptation and the way we are susceptible to sin. The first is this. We are tempted by a consistent voice. By a consistent voice. There's so many things about this episode that are weird. The garden, you may be a great gardener, you don't have a garden like that. Two perfect people, nobody like that here. Two completely innocent, guiltless people, nobody like that here. And then as we're going to see a talking snake. Now if that's not unusual for you, please see me afterwards for counseling. So many weird elements to this. That we could read this, and I fear so many people do read this, even Christian people, and they see it as almost a fable. But not only is it real history, it has real relevance to us. And that's why I word the outline this way. We are tempted by a consistent voice. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Let's just stop there for a moment. It says that the serpent was more crafty. This word for, the Hebrew word for for crafty, indicates someone who, in fact, in positive context, it's used of a wise person, a person who can see the consequences, see the dangers. And so that's what's being said of this, this creature who's being animated by Satan, as we will see. That he has the ability to see the vulnerabilities and exploit those of, in particular, the woman, of, of Eve. The serpent was more, was more crafty. And another word that's related to the word translated crafty here is a word that's translated elsewhere as bronze. And so many have, in fact, it's used together. Do you remember when Moses held the serpent up in the wilderness, the bronze serpent? And so the appeal partly of this uh, particular animal may have been in, in its very bronze-like appearance, many believe. The serpent was crafty, that is wise, able to take advantage of vulnerabilities, and also probably had this very shiny and appealing appearance. And it says it was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Any of the wild animals. Now, if you were to look back in chapter 1 and verse 24, chapter 1 and verse 24, back when we looked at that passage several weeks ago, 
which says we, we saw that it says in verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground. And then notice this and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And at the time we looked at that several weeks ago, I pointed out that these land animals, these living creatures are divided into three basic sorts. And in these sorts, all the animals of the earth are included. They're livestock, that is living creatures whom man can domesticate and tame. Then there are the creatures that move along the ground, small creatures that creep about on the ground, and even big animals that have no legs. But then there's this third category called the wild animals. And most commentators understand those to be animals that cannot be domesticated or tamed. And here in chapter 3 and verse 1, this serpent is called crafty, but also in the category of the wild animals the Lord God had made, those who cannot be tamed. Now, here's in all likelihood what that means. Among all the animals that Adam and Eve would see, they would not interact very often with the serpent. And the reason is it was one of the undomesticated animals. And then this animal that they don't see very often shows up. Bronze-like appearance. And at that point, upright. When you see those pictures, you know, you often see the snake hanging in the apple tree. But remember, one of the consequences of the fall is now after the fall. The, the, the serpent is going to crawl on his belly. Apparently prior to that, that's not what happened. And so here is Eve, and Eve is being confronted by this very unusual thing. Unusual in its alluring, apparently, appearance. Unusual in the fact that she doesn't see this often, this, this animal very often. Now, who is it that's speaking through the serpent? Revelation chapter 12 says this. That ancient serpent is called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Very last book of your Bible, speaking of this one that makes his appearance at the very beginning of the Bible. And who is this serpent? It is none other than Satan himself. Satan directly inhabited and spoke through then this animal to deceive Eve. Now, I want you to hear this because the first line here says that we are tempted by a consistent voice. I want you to understand that voice still speaks. The voice of the serpent still speaks. Satan spoke through the serpent directly to Adam and Eve, and Satan speaks to this world, and the Bible says he is the God of this world. He speaks to this world through a million megaphones. Every time something contrary to truth is spoken, Satan speaks. Every time someone succumbs to temptation to use what God has made contrary to God's designs, Satan has spoken and Satan has won. Every time there is tension and anger between two people that God made for community, you should hear the hiss and the voice of the serpent. He directly inhabited the serpent, and now he indirectly inspires surrogates to do his bidding. And who are those surrogates? It's every living human being that is now born into the world with a sin nature, and now all of us contribute in ways and shapes and forms to doing the bidding of the one who we came into this world with as our father, our father, the devil, Jesus said. And so we are tempted by a consistent voice. That voice still speaks. But I say secondly in your outline, we are tempted by consistent tactics. The voice still speaks, and the tactics have not changed. Now, what were those original tactics that were used? The first is this. We are tempted to doubt God's word. We are tempted to doubt God's word. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Satan says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The Lord God, we know, did not say any such thing. In fact, what was the original command that God gave? Now, notice carefully what Satan says in in verse 1. He asked the question, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? But what did God originally say? It's in chapter 2. It's in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now notice the difference here. (laughs) Satan says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? (laughs) And God said, all of these trees are yours. One tree that you can't eat from. And so he's attempting to create some doubt about God's word in the mind of, of, of Eve. And the woman says to the serpent in verse number two, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat free fruit from the tree that is in the middle of gar- the garden and you must not touch it or you will, or you will die. Now I just want to quickly point out some things about how Eve has been deceived into questioning God's word here. Verse 2 may sound innocent, but it's not so innocent when you break it down. First of all, she exaggerates God's prohibition. God never said you cannot touch the fruit. He said you shall not eat of it. She exaggerates the prohibition. And secondly, she minimizes the penalty that God gave. Actually, many translations, some translations of this say, he told us we can eat the fruit that's in, of, the, of the garden, but of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or lest you, lest you die. And God said back in verse 17 of chapter 2, you will certainly die. So she minimizes in the way she words this, the, the penalty. Because God said you will certainly die. And then thirdly, the woman minimizes the privileges they enjoy. She says we may eat. But God said you may eat freely. Back in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Having then caused the woman to question, successfully question, the veracity and the accuracy of God's word. Then in verse 4, Satan comes in with a blatant lie. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman. Now, friends, hear this. The tempter tempts in the very same ways today. He begins to cause you to question whether or not all of God's word and every last word that God has spoken is absolutely true and applicable to you. And then after you begin to question that, even in small ways, Then and only then is the tempter able to move to greater lies and more direct lies. And that's precisely what he does here. So how many of us wonder whether or not it's really true that God says marriage is for one man and one woman for one lifetime? How many of you are thinking about, ah, there's exception in my case? Even if I don't meet the two exceptions given in the Bible of adultery and abandonment, you don't know my situation. God doesn't really mean that. How many commands of God have many of us dismissed because God doesn't really mean it? And when we do that, we make ourselves vulnerable to then direct lies of Satan as Eve opened herself up to. We are tempted to doubt God's word. Same tactic Satan used in the garden. He still uses today. I say in your outline as well, we are tempted to doubt God's character. God's character. Now, how did that happen in this temptation? Verse number five. God knows that when you eat from it, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is saying here is, in effect, God does not have your best interest, Eve, at heart. God has given you this prohibition because he does not want what's best for you. And so you cannot trust God to do what's in your best interest. Following God and obeying God is apparently a dead end. And now post-fall, now as we're experiencing the effects of the fall, it's much easier to fall into that now. Because we look at all of the ill effects of living in a fallen world and all of the myriad of choices that we want to make and we become confronted with the choice to disobey God. And we begin to question, is God really going to work this out? Is God really going to work this situation out in a way that is ultimately best for me? God says that he will do that. God says that. 
He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But we begin to question God's good character and God's good design. We are tempted today, just like they were, by a consistent voice that speaks lies. By questioning God's word and questioning, doubting God's character. We're tempted by a consistent voice and with consistent tactics. But thirdly, I say in your outline, we're tempted by a consistent appeal, a consistent appeal. Verse six says this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. This is the moment of actual sin. She took some and she ate it. All the the rest is prelude to her actually engaging in the act of sin. All the rest of the doubting God's word and the doubting God's character now leads ultimately in verse 6 to a direct violation of what this good God in this good environment has told these otherwise good people that they're to do. You have all of this fruit to eat from, but this one prohibition I give you, and that prohibition has now been violated. She took some and she ate it. Now, why? Because there were three characteristics of this that she saw. The first is the fruit of the tree was good for food. Secondly, it was pleasing to the eye. And then thirdly, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, friends, let's just dissect this for a bit, because this is still the same way Satan tempts us. Satan presents his fool's gold as just that. It is it is glittering. It is shiny. It advertises that will be good for you. But in the end, it bites like a serpent. Satan has a great advertising agency. He has always advertised very well, but he has a very poor manufacturing department great advertising department poor manufacturing that is he can advertise all of these wonderful things but he can't deliver on what he promises but he makes it look good and in fact the new testament tells us satan masquerades as an angel of light you see that thing that person that dalliance that issue that you are struggling with, that looks so good to you and is so appealing to you, that is Satan masquerading as light. Understand if it's contrary to what God has told us. And he uses the same tactics today for us that he did with Eve. He has these three things. The tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. And notice what 1 John chapter 2 says. Everything in the world, the first one, the lust of the flesh, Now compare that to Eve saying that this is good for food. When you see lust there, don't think sexual lust. It's a word for just intense desire. The intense desires of the flesh. And so she sees that this is good for for food. And then the second one is the intense desires of what we see. And this fruit was pleasing to the eye, says verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. And then the pride of life. And the third thing that the woman saw as desirable in this fruit is that it would allow her to gain wisdom. All three of those mentioned now in the second part of your Bible as the same tactics that are characteristic of the world, all animated by the father of the world, Satan, using precisely the same appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. God had this one tree, and he said, don't eat of this one tree, everything else. And it's not that God created one bad tree and the other was a good tree. The tree, the tree was, was neutral. This was a test of love. Will you love me more than? And that's always the test for us. Will you love me, the Lord your God, more than the intense desires of your flesh? The intense desires of what you see. The intense desires of your pride. And that's what I have for you in your outline. We're tempted by a consistent appeal, a consistent appeal to the desires of our bodies. And the desires of our eyes. 
and the desires of our pride, of our bodies and of our eyes and of our pride. He used it in the garden. He continues to use it today. At the end of our message in just a bit, we're going to see he attempted to use it on the Lord Jesus himself. This means that Satan used and uses a consistent appeal to our sin nature. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Why should we be? He does the same junk. And we fall for the same stuff over and over again. At the end of verse 6, after this appeal, physically and to her eyes and to her pride, the end of verse 6 says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So this whole dialogue, Satan has come. He talks to the woman. The first foreign voice that the woman has ever heard other than God speaks to her and speaks contrary to what God says. And are you wondering in this whole dialogue in Genesis chapter 3, where is Adam? And it appears that Adam's watching this whole debacle go down. Now you remember from chapter 2, Adam was made the head of his home. The woman was made to be a helper for him. He was He's responsible then for what happens in his home, and he is silently watching what happens. And Adam does nothing to intervene, and not only does he not intervene, but then, along with his wife, she gave some to him, and he ate it. That is why the Bible calls this Adam's sin rather than Eve's sin. Because Adam was supposed to be leading and Adam abdicated in his leadership and he's responsible for that first for that first sin. That's why Romans 5 says this sin entered the world through one man. Men, I asked you last week when we looked at God's purpose for marriage. And I said that God's purpose for marriage is a relationship that is a relationship of discipleship in order to better one another to be made into the image of Jesus. And you men, we men, are to lead in that process. I ask you as I did last week, is your wife more like Jesus because of her relationship with you? And yet so many of us are passive. Our wives are the spiritual leaders in our homes. Adam abdicated his spiritual responsibility and sin entered the world. Now next week, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about why it is that Adam and Eve were our perfect representatives and why we are held responsible for what they did. There are perfectly good reasons why the Bible teaches that. I will give those to you next week. For now, I just want to say this. I have to say that of all the people I want to meet when I get to heaven, Adam's the first one. And I want to get my hands around his neck. And I just want to say to him, Adam... A few million of us would like to meet you in the celestial parking lot. And by that time, I'll be perfect, so I'm sure I'll lose the desire to have a beatdown on Adam in the the parking lot. But the truth is, though he was our representative, we are guilty in Adam. We will see that next week. So we are tempted by a consistent voice and by consistent tactics and a consistent appeal. And lastly, in your outline, we are tempted toward consistent Results, consistent results. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The result of all of this is now that the man and the woman who were made for communion with God are now separated from God and they are hiding themselves from him. And that's always the result. The result of sin is always a breach in our fellowship with God. A breach in our fellowship with God. At the end of chapter 2, the very first, last verse, verse 25 says that the man and the woman were naked, but they felt no shame. You see that? Chapter 2 and verse 25. Now with the entrance of sin, their eyes are open. They are ashamed, and rightly so, but they are ashamed not so much physically. They are ashamed, they are ashamed spiritually. And God is going to confront them as we will see next week. 
Now, Satan tries these same tactics, makes these same appeals. And to see that, I want you to see that he did the very same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do you see that? The lust of the flesh. And then the Bible says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship, worship me. I will give all of this, all of this to you. The lust of what you see. He shows them the kingdoms of all these worlds, the lust of the eyes. And then a third temptation. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself then throw yourself down. The pride of life. Show what you can do. Same appeal in the garden. Same appeal, 1 John says, that he makes to us, that he makes to Jesus. Now, here's what's important. I want you to see how Jesus thwarts this attack. How Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. In Matthew chapter 4, as the tempter tempts Jesus, just as he did the man and the woman in the garden, by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, Jesus responds in every one of those with an appeal to the word of God. And Jesus says, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up so that you will, they will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answers, Satan quotes the Bible there, believe it or not. But Jesus says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And to the second temptation, to the lust of the eyes, Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then to the temptation to the pride of life, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So for every one of these, Jesus says, it is written, an appeal to the word of God. And friends, he uses the same appeal, the same tactics for us, and we have the same weapon. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, here is the armor of the Christian. And the the one offensive weapon that the Christian has in that armor is the word of God. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Now, as we conclude, please understand this. That sin is this. It is misappropriating God's gifts for our ends. Sin is misappropriating God's gifts for our own ends. It is valuing and loving anyone or anything more than God. The man and the woman were given the possibility of choice in order to love God freely and voluntarily. They failed. They sinned. And when we value or love anyone or anything more than God then we have failed. Now, you remember 1 John 2, 16 and 17? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world, the lust of the, uh, the, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these all come from the world and not from the Father. That's in 1 John chapter 2. The very last verse in 1 John, very last verse, is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21. Here's what it says. Little children, keep yourselves... From idols. Very last verse. And then the letter signs off. Now if you were to read the 105 verses prior to that verse in First John, the letter of First John, you would find, not find one mention of the word idol or idolatry, not one. So why does John sign off with that? Why does he say keep yourselves from idols? Here's why. Even though he hasn't used the word idol or idolatry, That whole letter is about idolatry. It's about loving or valuing something or someone else more than God. That's why chapter 2 and verse 16 says, love not the world. Because all that's in the world, the intense desires of the flesh, the intense desire of what we see, the intense desires of our pride, are all a matter of us valuing and loving something or someone else more than God. Satan has used the same tactics over and over and over. The same appeals over and over and over. And do you know how insanity is defined? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result. 
And yet we fall for it over and over again. That's why I titled this message, The Insanity of Sin. Now, the take-home truth is this. Sin always follows the same pattern. And it always requires the same solution. Now, what is that solution? In the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded in resisting temptation where Adam and Eve failed, where we have failed. And because Jesus succeeded now, we have our refuge, our solution to the problem of sin in the one who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why then the Bible can tell us, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus has done what Adam was supposed to do. And so our solution always comes in repairing to the cross of Jesus. Let's do that now. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for recording in your word for us what it is that has caused all of the problems that we experience in our world, in our own personal lives. Lord, it amounts to, as in the beginning, so has always been, It amounts to always us valuing or loving someone or something more than you. Our first parents did so, and we as their children continue to do so. Oh, Lord, forgive us. But we thank you for the solution that you have provided in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and was tempted in all points like we are and yet was without sin. Oh, Lord, we thank you that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And so instead now of Adam being my representative, the Lord Jesus Christ is my representative before you when I come to him, believing who he is and what he has done, living the life that I should have lived and dying the death that I deserved. I pray that in this sacred moment, your spirit would draw some out of the world into yourself. Seeing that sin animates their thoughts and sin animates their desires like it does for all of the children of Adam. And that their only solution is the one who overcame sin by his perfect life and his death on the cross. I pray that they will turn to you as all of us have had to do at one time, at a point in time, so that you are now changing us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us about the schemes of Satan so that we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how he acted and we know how he presently acts and how he will continue to act. Help us, Lord, to be reasonable people, people who read your word and have our minds renewed so that we don't engage in the insanity of sin, engaging in the falling for the same appeal and the same tactics over and over again and somehow expecting better results. May you, Lord, glorify yourself in us as we appropriate the truth of your word to our temptations. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.